talking about chapters 1 and 2. So let me just kind of fill in chapters 1 and 2 for you um, so that we're all on the, on the same page. And those really deal with the infancy narrative of Jesus Christ. And it has introduced the reader to both, to two very important figures, Jesus and John. We see the miraculous conception of both John and Jesus. Um, and then Luke goes on and he records the early life of Christ that is carefully recorded. And now in chapter 3, we've basically seen the infancy narrative of Christ. We see a brief mention of Christ at the age of 12 in Luke's gospel. And now Luke fast forwards to be to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So he, he moves forward some 18 years um, and to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And it is in this that we see the ministry of John proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. John is a forerunner. He is the herald that went in and and proclaimed the arrival of the king. So that's that's just kind of a quick summary of the first two chapters of the book of Luke. If you want more detail go to the book of Luke and read the first two chapters. And that will help you tremendously. Um, Let me just also now, having looked at a little bit of the setting, the background of the the text, let's look at where our message this morning, um, where I intend it to go. Um, And what I want to look at is I want to look at three big big themes. First of all, we want to look at the historic setting. We want to consider the historic setting, that what is happening here is not happening in a vacuum, and it's really important that uh, we understand. I think we can understand what John is saying and what John is doing if we have a a good clue as to um, what's going on in the world. And so we'll we'll look at the setting in which this is um, considered. We also want to, I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about John's message, and um, really, for the next two weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. This week is going to be about um, the message of repentance. But next week, we're going to look at what does, repent, what does the repentant life look like. So this week is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Next week, we'll pick up at, with, oh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And next week, we'll pick up at Luke chapter Luke 3, verse 7. And so today we want to look at the message of repentance. And then next week we'll look at what does the repentant life look like. But all of these, both of these messages, have to do with preparing for the arrival of uh, of the Messiah. So today we'll look at John's message and focus on that theme of repentance or returning um, to Christ, to returning to God. And then finally, our third big um, issue will be the prophetic f- fulfillment, how John fulfills prof- the, um, the words of the prophets heralding the coming uh, as, as the herald who announces the arrival of the Messiah. So that's uh, uh, that gives us a general idea of where we're going to go. I think that this is a passage of text that is needful for us today for for a number of reasons. Number one, it points, John's ministry is important. We often overlook John's ministry, but John's ministry points us to mankind's greatest need and um, that we have a need of a savior. 
Also, John's call to prepare for the arrival of a king is an ever-relevant message. We are always in need of um, having lives that are consistent with the one we serve. And so this is, I think, an important Advent message. So if you will... Um, get your Bibles will be uh, one of the things we can do. I talked about uh, this is corporate worship. We gather together. One of the ways we can also participate in the message is by um, following along in the text as it is read, listening carefully to it. Um, there will be a few cross-references that I will ask that you turn to. And so um, we can participate together by looking at all of those passages together. So if you will... Follow along with me as I read the inerrant word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Word of the Lord stands forever. I want to begin here with this historic setting because in these first six verses, um, two and a half verses are dealt, are, Luke is dealing with this historic announcement. It is first two and a half verses are dedicated to history. And we probably shouldn't be too surprised because we know that Luke is a historian. So we're not too surprised that he is interested in history stuff. Um, in fact, in Luke chapter 1, I think this is important, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is how Luke opens his, opens his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me. Also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke begins his his gospel with this uh, saying, listen, I've researched this stuff. I've looked into it. I've heard the stories, but I've looked into it. I've done my interviews. I've done my historical research. And he is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he's saying, I'm right. I've done all of my, this research. And I am writing to you, O Theophilus, so that you may have certainty about the things that have happened. And so Luke's gospel is written to give his people, to give God's people certainty about the events surrounding Jesus Christ. And so he begins, so he grounds much of his his account in history. See, God is working out his salvation in time. God's salvation is worked out through history. In fact, we often call it, we, you'll hear us often refer to redemptive history. 
That is, the Bible is a, an account of God's redemptive historical plan. In other words, we don't see, when we talk about the Bible being historical, it doesn't record every historical event in the history of the Jews. It doesn't record every single thing. But what it does record is how God has through a people living in a certain place at a, through certain periods of time has brought about his plan of salvation. And so here now um, Luke is recording that. This should give us great comfort. Sometimes people accuse Christians of a blind leap of faith as though we just believe in Gremlins and fairy tales and unicorns and uh, all sorts of fanciful beings with no evidence. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It is grounded in history. And so there is this theological element. God is working out his purposes in history. And so we can actually date when this event occurred. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That puts us at about the year 28 or 29 AD. There's a little bit of a question about how they counted the years that a king reigned, and I won't get into all of the gory details about that, but there's a little bit of uncertainty, but we're pretty close. 2,000 years ago, and we can get it probably within a year or two. Probably 28 or 29 AD, these are the events that took place in this little remote outpost of the Roman Empire. So John gives us this historical account, but John, I'm sorry, Luke, I got John the Baptist and Luke the author, and so forgive me if I get them all mixed up throughout the message, but um, it's Luke's gospel, but we're going to be talking about John the Baptist, and so I'll just trust you guys to figure that out if I mess it up. But Luke isn't just interested in cold, hard historical facts. He also wants, I believe that there is a theological component to his mentioning of these rulers. And I think it's going to help us to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, we, we need to remember that um, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip. These are not men of high moral standing. We need to remember, this is important to remember that the Jewish people are an occupied people. Their lives are being governed by pagan godless rulers. These are individuals, these are powerful men with entirely different worldviews than the Jews. Their view of the world is contrary to that of the Jews. They have a completely different worldview. The, the Roman leaders had a completely different understanding of how man came to be on the earth, how the earth came into existence, how the universe came into existence, how man came into existence. They have a completely different worldview in regards to creation. They have a different, completely different worldview in, the, in regards to the value of life. In fact, we will see Herod just slaughtering children. 
They have a different understanding of the value of life. They have a completely different view of ethics and morality, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. They have a completely different view of what it means to stand before God on the day of judgment. Is there a day of judgment? Um, what is What happens when you die? These Roman rulers, these pagan rulers, have a completely world view, different worldview. And the Jews, Israel, is an occupied nation ruled by godless men. These rulers were pagan. They were powerful. They were arrogant. In fact, some on this list actually contributed to the death of John the baptizer, who we'll be talking about. These were men who claimed no loyalty to the God of the Jews. They tolerated the religion of the Jews, but they didn't honor it. They put up with it. They thought it was silly. They thought it was foolish. They tolerated it. They claimed no loyalty to the God of the Jews, and yet God is going to use this pagan empire to bring about His glorious purposes. Folks, that should give us pause and it should give us a cause for rejoicing that God is not limited by pagan rulers. He is not thwarted by godless leaders. He is not hindered by corrupt laws. God moves an empire. Think about it. How did God get his Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? He moved an empire. Do you really think that the census by Caesar was just Caesar came out? I got a great idea. God moved an empire and brings about the fulfillment of his purposes. And so while they have no regard for God Almighty, God is not hindered. So there is this this corrupt and oppressive um, civil government. But there is also, we note here, there is also a, a note of religious oversight. We see this in, this was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now this is really interesting and it kind of goes back to the the civil uh, government. But um, Annas was was formerly the high priest, but he was replaced by Rome with his son-in-law. So you have Annas, he's the high priest. Rome replaces him with his own son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now think about this. This is significant for a number of reasons. Number one, Caiaphas is high priest, but he is not of the line of Aaron. All right? So you'll recall, if you're good Old Testament scholars that we are, we can go back and we recall that a high priest needed to be of the line of Aaron. Caiaphas is not. Rome appointed him. He is a puppet of Rome. You think about this. So... um Caiaphas now has has his... Rome is smart in the sense that we have this group of religious folks down here in this kind of backwoods area, but they're pretty fervent. And they will not willingly come under our thumb. But if we appoint a high priest 
who is loyal to us, who is dependent upon us, perhaps we have a little bit of influence and uh, ability to keep them under control. And so we have both Annas and Caiaphas serving as high priest. Well, actually, Caiaphas is high priest, but I don't know that the Jews completely recognized him as high priest because he wasn't of the line of Aaron. So we have both Annas and Caiaphas, basically kind of two high priests functioning at the same time. One, uh, more in, in line with Jewish custom, and one, ba- basically Caiaphas being a, um, a plant by Rome. And so... Basically, we can say that Caiaphas has the title, but Annas had the power. And we see these two mentioned together throughout the scriptures. You have both Caiaphas and Annas serving in the high priesthood. Caiaphas had the title, but Annas had the power. So we have this kind of messed up high priesthood. And so we have this religious corruption, we have political corruption, and then it is into this environment that the John the Baptizer comes and begins his ministry. So let's talk a little bit about his ministry. This, verse 2, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now this should cause every... careful reader of scripture to pause. John, I'm sorry, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Again, being good Old Testament scholars, we're all saying, wait a second, that sounds like the call of a prophet. When when we read, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 1 and 2 or Hosea 1, 1 or Micah 1, 1 or Haggai 1, 1, this, this is the exact phrasing that God uses to introduce His prophet to His people. The word of the Lord came to Haggai, the son of. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. This is God's prophet. He is an Old Testament prophet that God is now going to speak through and declare his message. What's significant here is that you may, many of you are aware that there has been no prophetic voice for some 400 years. God has been on mute, if you will. He has spoken through his his angelic through angels to both Mary and to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, but there has been no prophetic word by God's called prophets. No prophetic voice for 400 years. Let's look very briefly. I want to look at the book of Malachi. And because Malachi is the last prophetic voice in the scripture. And I want to note how Malachi ends his prophecy. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, listen to how Malachi concludes his prophetic speaking. Behold, 
I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers and their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how Malachi ends his prophecy. That is the last word of God spoken for 400 years. Turn with me now, if you will, to Luke chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And listen to how God speaks to Zechariah. Who is John's father. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Malachi speaks that Elijah will come and he will turn the hearts of the to their fathers, the hearts of the sons to their fathers and fathers to their children and prepare the way of the Lord. And now the angel of the Lord says to Zechariah, here's John. John is that one. He is coming in the spirit of Elijah and he will do exactly what Malachi said he is going to do. And then John comes along. And the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. This is God speaking his word to the people of Israel in that day. And so into this historic setting, a prophet arises. This is the word of the Lord. John is a prophet and he speaks the message of God. Sometimes we downplay who John was or what John did. John is an Old Testament prophet of God coming and declaring after 400 years of silence, he is now speaking forth God's holy word. He is not speaking his own views. He is not giving his own personal opinion. His words are God's words. John is now going to speak with the authority of an Old Testament prophet. He is going to say, thus saith the Lord. He is not just some wild loner with a weird diet out in the wilderness. He is the mouthpiece of God Almighty. We should hear his voice. And he comes in the wilderness. And I'm going to say a little bit more about this because I think that the wilderness here has much more to do than, it has more than, its importance is more than just geographical location. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So, We have this prophet and the prophet comes and he is speaking the very words of God. And what is the, what is the message of God Almighty through the called prophet of God? He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you and I, when we think of baptism, probably at least two images come to our mind. The first image that come, comes to, to our mind is baptism of the Holy Spirit. And a second image that comes to mind was what we might call believer's baptism or um, 
Maybe Great Commission baptism would be a way to put that, that is the baptism in water upon, um, actually upon reception of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's, those are the two images that come to mind. Um, before we talk about John's baptism for the, uh, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, let me first maybe highlight a little bit of what John's baptism is not, or John's message is not. Um, John is not calling people to a renewed political direction. He is not calling them to Jewish nationalism. He is not even calling them to patriotism. He is not calling for them to even return to the glorious days of David's reign. Oh, if we could just get back, if we could just get our nation back to when David ruled, then everything would be good. John is not calling them back to any of that. John is also not teaching that the act of baptism washes away sins. John is very clear that being submerged in the muddy waters of the Jordan is not enough to wash away, will not atone for your sins. In fact, John knows that atonement requires way more than water because later when Jesus is walking along the banks of the Jordan, what does Jesus say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here's what atones for sin. My baptism will not wash away any of your sins. These muddy waters will do no, will provide no atonement. What you need is you may need something much more powerful than the waters of the Jordan. You need the sinless Son of God to die for your sins. You need a lamb. You need a perfect, spotless, holy lamb. And when he sees Jesus, he said, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what is it? If it's not some call to new political direction or some called patriotism, if it is not a call that actually washes away my sins, then what in the world is it? John has a message. And the, the message is that we need to repent and be forgiven of our sins. Now you need to remember who John's primary audience here is. John's primary audience are the people of Israel, God's people. And he is calling God's people to return to God. This had to be an affront to Jewish sensibilities. Me return to God, I'm a child of Abraham. Prepare for the arrival of God, of course I'm ready. My blood runs pure. I have, I have no Gentile defilement in my holy blood. And John is saying, you need to repent. You need to return. You need to prepare for the coming of the one whose baptism is with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We'll talk about that next week. See, John knows that the world does not need new political direction. It does not need a revitalized religious program. The world needed a word from God. The world needed a prophet. The The world needed a call back to God. The world needed a call to return to God Almighty. This is a baptism for repentance. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So let's just remind ourselves of what repentance is. Ultimately, repentance is to turn. Um, we could call it a change of mind. That's how it's been understood um, at least since the 16th century. 
Actually, before that, it had just been forgotten. But it is not just a turning from something. It is a turning to something. And, and I want to focus on that turning to. Because what you turn to makes all the difference. Turning from is important. We need to turn from certain things. But what we turn to makes all the difference. The one to whom you turn makes repentant, makes Christian repentance distinctive. In other words, there are many people today who turn from errant lifestyles or irresponsible lifestyles. We can probably go around this room and we can probably talk about how we lived prior to Christ. And we all know people. We all know people who lived in a way contrary to the word of God. And they may say, yeah, you know what? When I was in my 20s or whatever, I lived in... And some of you are still in your 20s. So when I was in my teens... I lived a particular way and I, and I, and I was pretty wild and I did certain things, but now I'm older, I'm much more mature and I've turned from those things. And now I've got a good job and I'm responsible. I take care of my kids and I'm not, um, just out and about doing crazy wild things. I've turned from that. But what do they turn to? Perhaps they've just turned to their own self-sufficiency to fix their lives. I'm now a better person. But that's not, a, that's not the Christian understanding of repentance. It is a turning from, but it is a turning to Christ. It is a turning to God to deliver us from our sins, from our bondage, from our slavery. So Christian, in what are you trusting? Well, I've cleaned up my life. Good. But again, if you just turn to your own self-sufficiency, you're still as lost as you were prior to cleaning up your life. You haven't advanced. You might be more moral as you determine your own morals. You might be more responsible. But you aren't more acceptable before a holy God. So the one to whom you turn makes all the difference. And so repentance is a turning from our sin and it is a turning to Christ in repentance. It is in Christ that we will find that we have returned to God Almighty. So God, so John preaches a repentance. He's calling people to turn. And he's calling them to turn from, we'll see this, turn from their wicked ways and turn to the Lord God Almighty. Prepare your hearts. And it is for the forgiveness of sins. That is, it is freedom from bondage or slavery. That word forgiveness has a lot to do with the being released from bondage. It has much to do with being released from slavery. So, church, in Advent, there is a call to return. Yes, even a call to God's people 
to return to God Almighty. So I would ask, during this week, during this time, in what ways have I wandered from God Almighty? In what ways do I need to return to God Almighty in my thought life, in the way, in the things I view, in the things I read, in the things that I think, in the things um, that I do, in my attitudes? Where do I need to turn? Where do I need to return? And I'm not just asking you to improve your life. Return to Christ. Lean upon Christ. Fall upon Christ. So John comes with a message, a need for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And he came baptizing. We should probably spend just a few moments discussing John's baptism. It says clearly it is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But we should probably uh, distinguish John's baptism from the two baptisms that I've presented earlier, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism, say, Great Commission baptism. You should note that in, in the New Testament, there are probably at least seven ways that the word baptism is used. And I'm just going to, to focus on John's baptism and what we might call Christian baptism. John's baptism was unique to John. And it was grounded in his prophetic office. We do not baptize in John's baptism today. It was a call to commitment with the recognition that God is coming. It was an affirmation that looked with hope for the coming of God and that a life and a life that is consistent with God's nature. So it looked to the future. It pointed, John's baptism pointed to the coming of Christ. In fact, a really, really good understanding of this is actually found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, we uh, get some real clarity here. It goes like this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 of them in all. So we have these disciples of John. They've been baptized into John's baptism and there's and Paul is saying listen John just taught John's baptism was pointing to the one who has come Jesus Christ the righteous Jesus has come and they said well then we probably need something different and Paul Paul then baptized them into Christ and significantly enough we see evidence that they were also baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time so John's baptism anticipates the one who is coming who will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. So, summary. Into this corrupt political religious world, God sends a prophet calling people to repent in anticipation of the arrival of the King of Glory. We then see this prophetic fulfillment, this Quote from Isaiah chapter 40. 
John is linked with Isaiah. And we've read, we read this, these verses earlier. Um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In other words, make the way of the king smooth. Make the way of the king smooth. Prepare the way. Make sure there's no potholes. That when the king comes, he has a smooth path and he finds you prepared for his arrival. This is what John is doing. This is what John's baptism was. So John's presence, and also we should note that John's presence in the wilderness, I think, is more than just a geographical location. It is, that is true. He is in the wilderness making these messages, but I think that wilderness here has another emphasis. See, if you are a herald if you were a proclaimer of a message, if you were proclaiming the coming of the king, you don't go out into the desolate wilderness to make your proclamation. You go into the cities. If you want to get your people to hear what you're saying, you go to where the people are. John is in the wilderness. And I think that the wilderness here evokes a powerful message for the Jews because the wilderness has... Exodus ramifications. When God delivered his people from the slavery of Egypt, from the hand of their oppressor, Pharaoh, God brought them into the wilderness and then he brought them into the land of promise. The Exodus is a huge issue for the Jewish people. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible about the Exodus. You know what it's called? It's called Exodus. John is calling for a new Exodus. He's actually calling for... and so this wilderness imagery, in fact, then the Jews, they go into the, into the promised land and they, and then they, they really mess up. And in 956, they, there's a civil war in, in Israel and the nation is divided. There is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in the early 8th century, this, the, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians deal with them in a certain way. Then in the early 7th, I'm sorry, the early 6th century, the Babylonians come and they destroy the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and the people in the, in the southern kingdom. And Babylon had a unique way of dealing with conquered people. They took them into exile. And they brought the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, brought them back into Babylon, and they kept them enslaved in Babylon. And they had them doing the work and doing all the things that slaves do in Babylon. But God said, after 70 years in Babylon, you will return home. There will be a new exodus. And I will release you from the hand of your captors. I will release you from the hand of those who enslave you. I will release you from your oppressors. And there will be a new exodus. And you will return back to the land of promise. And John comes into the wilderness preaching a new exodus 
Prepare the way. The king is coming. He doesn't go to the cities where the people were. This new exodus, however, is not a release from foreign rule. It is not a a release from the rule of Pharaoh or from any Babylonian king. It is an exodus. It is a release from something way more enslaving. And that is our own sinful nature and our own propensity to rebel against God Almighty. It is a freedom from our hardened hearts which are corrupt. God's people are in bondage and God is sending a mighty deliverer and John is the guy who's announcing that day has come. There is a new exodus and you are about to be released from... Now, get yourself ready just as in the first exodus. Get yourself ready. You're about to be released. Here's what you need to do. And they made preparations. In the second exodus out of Babylon, get yourself ready. The day is coming. And you will return back home. And John now is the herald of a new exodus. Get yourselves ready because the king is coming and he is going to deliver you not from Tiberius Caesar, not from Pontius Pilate, not from Herod of Galilee, not from Philip the Tetrarch, not from Licinius the Tetrarch of Abilene. He is going to free you from the captivity of hell itself and your own hardened hearts and he will make you a new creature. That king is coming. John is declaring to the people in exile that their bondage is ending. Deliverance is at hand. Prepare for the exodus. Make the way smooth. The highway um, that clears the way for God's coming is a purified heart. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. In other words, that this exodus is not just to captive Jews. This salvation, this exodus is for all. All is a, there is a universal nature to this call that salvation is from God. Man's efforts and man's merits will not deliver you from what the king is coming to set you free from. So get yourselves ready and salvation is universal in scope. It is not limited just to the Jewish people. It is now comprehensive and it is to all people. All people will see the salvation of God. John's message is directed to Israel, but in this new exodus, all flesh will be included. So, as I conclude this message, a couple of points of application. The first one is a focus on humility. We talked about this in our Bible study this morning, but I think it, it fits our our message well. To submit to John's baptism required humility. It was a Jewish person saying that I am not clean and I am not ready for the Lord's return. I need something else. It required humility to say that while I am a child of Abraham... I am not on friendly terms with God Almighty. It required humility. So you see, God comes to the humble who acknowledge who they are and what, and that they have a need. And I would, if you were here this morning and you have not called upon the name of the Lord, um, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to consider Christ and to humble yourself before him. You say, well, I have no need of Christ. I'm pretty sufficient on my own, and I have a deal worked out with God. No, you don't. He's asked you to humble yourself and acknowledge your sin and his ability to forgive your sins. That's our first application. Second 
application is kind of the opposite side of humility, and that's exaltation. God exalts the humble. He lifts them up. You see, the gospel is for all. You can say, well, you don't know what I've done. You're probably right. I don't know what you've done. Um, but you have not out the grace of God. And God is calling you to prepare a way for him. So this is a call to, to return to the one who made you. It is a call to return to the one that we have alienated by our sin. It is a call to return to the one who sent the only means by which our sins were for will be forgiven. It is a call to return to the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is the second week of Advent. It is a call to return. Our Father God, we give you praise and we give you thanks this morning. And we ask, Lord God, that you would humble us and that we would return to you and that we would rejoice in your salvation and we would glory in the one um, who has been sent to forgive us of our sins, Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, ruler of heaven and earth. And let us now humble ourselves that you might exalt us, that we might be saved and called your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.